looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, we discovered several weeks ago this was written by King Solomon, Solomon being the son of King David. Uh, Solomon is writing this toward the end of his life. Um, Solomon starts out his reign, 40-year uh, reign over Israel on a roll. Um, he uh, seems to have life by the tail. Uh, everything he touches seems to turn to gold. Um, but somewhere along the way, the train runs off the tracks, as we have discovered these past weeks. Um, and we discover him, so he's, he's very sour at life in the early chapters of Ecclesiastes. That's pretty hard to miss. Um, but as we move into Ecclesiastes, today we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Um, his, his sourness and his anger turns toward sadness. And he begins to take up a despondent and melancholy um, outlook on life. Um, our text for today uh, is, again, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. But as things kind of work out, um, what's in your bulletin is not what I'm going to be sharing. Because that's what happens sometimes when you come up here on Saturday mornings. Um, and the text that we're actually going to be reading comes from the Gospels. So throw another curveball at you. So Matthew chapter 22, this is Jesus responding to the question, which are the greatest commandments? And so we're going to tie all that in together here in just a little bit. If you would, stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 22, and then we'll get back to Solomon here momentarily. Matthew 22, starting at verse 37. Here we go. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You may be seated. All right, we're going to come back to those verses in just a little bit. We are going to get to Ecclesiastes chapter 6 in a little bit. But first, I wanted to do a little background work on Solomon. Uh, just kind of, we really haven't done this up until now, um, to look at this progression of his life. And so we'll do a little what I call psychological exegesis, kind of hold him up and look at him and examine what's going on and what's dri what has driven him to this place of seeming madness. Um, so let's jump back to 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. Uh, again, Solomon um, at this point is getting started as the new king of Israel. He's been installed. He's been anointed. He's had to observe the proper time of mourning for, of his father David. Um, and now he's being installed as the new king. And we get to, a glimpse of Solomon's heart at the beginning of his reign. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 3. It writes, Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes or the instructions of David, his father. However, he did have one area of disobedience. He did have one Achilles heel, if you would. He sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. I've got a couple pictures for you here. This is um, a high place. This is actually the Tel Gezer, which is west of Jerusalem. This is one of many pagan Canaanite sites where they would do worship of their false gods. Uh, they would go up on these high mountaintop or high hilltop areas, and they would construct an altar. Lots of times they were um, making sacrifices of children. Um, and because of that, God said, hey, look, this, this is completely off limits. Nevertheless, the Jewish people, when they moved back into the land of Canaan, when they reclaimed the, the land that God had promised to Abraham after um, the exodus, when they did this, uh, they converted these high places into religious sites where they would make sacrifices for sin to their God, the God of Abraham. However, again, this practice was strictly forbidden by the laws of Moses because it tainted 
what God had intended to be toward him, and God knew what's going to happen happening is syncretism, which is there going to be a blending of the pagan religion with the true worship of God, and that's, of course, what ended up happening. The Israelites did, uh, they did sacrifices there on these high places anyways, and Solomon picks up on the practice. At the beginning of his reign, Solomon was a good king. He was a God-fearing king. But as this verse indicates, or as it foreshadows, there are dark days of sin ahead. Jump forward about 30 years into Solomon's reign. 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 4 reveals, For when Solomon was old, that is around the time that he wrote Ecclesiastes, some of his pagan foreign wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Verse 7, Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, that was one of the false gods, the abomination of the Moabites. And he built another high place. So these are newly constructed high places. These aren't just going in and taking over what was there. He's constructing new high places toward the end of his reign. One to Chemosh and another to Molech, the god of uh, the Ammonites. What started out as a soft sin early on in the reign of Solomon turns into full-blown abomination. He was making sacrifices to false gods at the end of his life. He was building or constructing new high places, new sites where they could um, observe this worship of these false gods. Therefore, verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I've commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to a stranger or I'll give it to someone else. Verse uh, 12, yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days. That is, in your lifetime, you won't see this happen. But instead, I will tear it out of the hand of your son. So Solomon knows, God just put him on notice, that when Solomon leaves this earth and hands his kingdom over to his son, that that kingdom, everything Solomon's worked for, all the wealth that he's accumulated, all of it is going to be torn from the hand of his son and given to someone else. That is, Solomon can anticipate Everything he's worked for, all of his regional influence, his international fame, all of it is going to be wiped away. God says, for the sake of your father, David, I'm not going to destroy it all. I'm going to dismantle most of it. I won't do this during your lifetime, but you will live out the rest of your days knowing that this is what's going to happen. Now skip over to Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and verse 1. The information that Solomon shares here in these verses in chapter 6 is autobiographical in nature. He's talking, it seems like, about an individual who has certain circumstances, but the individual, as you'll come to see, is himself. So let's take a look at verse 1. He's reflecting back on the decisions that he's made and the consequences that resulted. Verse 1. There is an evil, that is, an egregious plague... That I have seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind. This egregious plague, this evil is moving its way through humanity. He says it's not something that everyone experiences, but it's unfortunately something that is fairly common. Verse 2. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. I want to take a time out here for just a second and jump back to the beginning of Solomon's reign once again. To 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and verse 12. Solomon is again here at the beginning of his reign. God says, I'll grant you anything that you want, Solomon. You just name it. You just ask for it, and I'll make sure that you have it. Solomon asks for wisdom. 
God says, well, hey, look, that was such a good choice that I'm going to end up giving you what a lot of other people would have chosen. Verse 12, because you've asked for wisdom, I will give you wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. However, I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor. Now, in the Hebrew language there, the same words that are translated riches, possessions, and honor in 1 Chronicles 1 and verse 12, or 2 Chronicles 1 and 12, are the same words that appear in Ecclesiastes 6 and verse 2. In fact, it's the only, other, it's the only place in the Bible where these set of words appear together. Wealth, possessions, and honor. And both of them are written by or talking about Solomon. Again, this material is autobiographical. That will become important in just a moment. Hang on to it. Verse 2. Here is the evil that he says he's seen. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor. The three things that God gave to Solomon in addition to wisdom. So that this man lacks nothing of all that he desires. We've heard Solomon say that a number of times. I had everything. It was all, everything was at my fingertips. Everything that I could possibly want, I had. Again, Solomon's talking about himself. Yet... God does not give him or allow him the power to enjoy those things. Instead, a stranger enjoys them. Solomon's talking about himself. Solomon is writing these words in the aftermath of God having informed him that everything he's built, everything he's acquired, all of the political and military conquests that he's made, everything he's fought for, that all of it is going to vanish. If you recall the word hebel, the Hebrew word that's translated vanity back in chapter 1, hebel occurs 37 times throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Hebel literally means a breath or a vapor. Solomon realizes his whole kingdom is going to hebel or is going to vanish before his, uh, before, when his son takes over. He realizes the kingdom that he holds in his hands is like trying to clutch onto sand. And the tighter he tries to hold on to this kingdom, the more this kingdom just drains out of his grip. There's nothing Solomon can do to stop what is going to happen. God has said uh, this is what's going to happen. And so in part, what we have in the pages of Ecclesiastes is a man grieving over loss. Grieving over loss. Psychologists define the stages of grief as this. Got a quick little slide for you here. Shock, followed by anger, followed by sadness, and finally acceptance. Acceptance doesn't mean that the person's no longer sad. It doesn't mean that they're no longer angry. But it just means that they come to a place where they've walked through some of these emotions that they're able to begin making forward progress in life. They're able to start living and reengaging in life again. Um, there are a lot of things that we lose in life. We can lose a job. We can lose a house. Certainly, we can lose a loved one. We can lose a dream. There are plenty of AAA baseball players who never got the call up to the majors. When we lose things, there is a process that God has built into the human heart, and that process allows us, once we've gone through it, it aids us in our recovery. Psychologists call that, again, the stages of grief. In the early chapters of Ecclesiastes, we observe an angry Solomon. He's angry at himself. He's angry at God. He's barking at the world. He was disillusioned. And, that point, and at that point, he was nowhere close to accepting what had happened. 
He was nowhere close to accepting God's ruling that the kingdom he had worked so hard for was one day soon going to hebble or was going to vanish away. Solomon goes on to say in chapter 6 and verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied. Solomon had many wives. Solomon had many children. Uh, Solomon's soul was not satisfied. He had everything. He had hundreds of children. He had all that wealth. He had all those possessions, all the honor. He was an international rock star. Yet still the high places of Molech and Chemosh called to him. And he gave in to that voice calling him away from the Lord his God. He ends verse 3. He says, I say that a stillborn child is better off than the man who had a hundred children and was never satisfied. Do you see the change in tone of Solomon? Again, he was angry in the early chapters. And now we arrive at chapter 6 and we see a man who is um, overcome by sadness. He's moved on to the third stage of grief, the third stage of recovering from loss, the stage of sadness. He writes in chapter 7 and verse 1, The day of death is better than the day of birth. He says in chapter 2, It's better to go to the house of mourning, that is to a funeral home, than it is to go to the house of feasting, to a party. Now there is some truth in there. All of Solomon's partying have created in him a little bit too much self-confidence. Uh, he's just been doing whatever he wanted to do and bypassing what God expected of him. A mortuary could have sobered him up, and he wishes that he had been a little bit more sober a lot sooner. Nevertheless, despondency has taken over. Verse 3, he writes, sorrow is better than laughter. Do you see the sadness? This man is grieving over what he knows he has lost. Look again at Gustav Dorr's painting of Solomon. Um, he captures Solomon in his old age. The papers of Ecclesiastes are there in his hand. The life and vitality is drained from his face. Solomon appears empty. The spark of life is gone. You know, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Satan is the father of lies. Deception is his strategy. He promises freedom, freedom from the bonds of God-honoring conduct, only for us to become imprisoned to the chains of regret. Solomon is sitting on Mount Regret. Jump forward with me, if you would, to the very end of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. These are Solomon's concluding remarks to the whole book, and I thought it was appropriate for us to go there at this point, having done a little psychological exegesis this morning, and seeing him where he's at, and I think we'll appreciate best these words at this point. He writes in verse 13, Here is the end of the matter. Now that all has been heard, here's what you should do. Fear God and keep his commandments. I wish I had. For this is the whole duty of man. Verse 14, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Again, Solomon is writing from a place of brokenness. He is writing war words of warning. He's saying, I messed up. Don't do like I did. He's saying, fear God. I didn't. He's saying, keep his commandments. I didn't. Take it from me. Sin does 
not pay. And if you think it is, or if you think it does, I would encourage you to sober up. All right, well, that's our treatment of these verses for today. And so that means it's time for us to stop here and ask the question we ask week in and week out here, which is, what difference does all this make to your life and to mine? Great question. Let's see if we can answer that. You know, many of us have stood in Solomon's shoes. We have tasted what the world had to offer. We have drunk in its licentiousness and its debauchery. And in the aftermath, we discovered what Solomon discovered, that sin way overpromises and underdelivers. We've experienced these stages of grief, shock that we ever did such a thing, anger at ourselves, sadness about the lives that we've hurt, and finally accepting the forgiveness that Jesus offers and moving on with life. That's how a Christian moves through these stages of grief. This is the process that God, our Creator, has built into the heart of every single man. The Bible has a name for this process. It's called repentance. Repentance can be defined as such. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we live perfect from that point forward. That's not what repentance is insisting. Repentance is no guarantee of perfection. However, repentance is a sincere, heartfelt desire to want to forsake sin and a striving after what Solomon concludes to be the chief duty of man, to fear God and keep his commandments. Friends, if we do that, if we fear God and keep his commandments, it will keep us off of Mount Regret. What difference does this make to your life and to mine? Well, many of us have sat up on Mount Regret, and we know what this feels like. We've been gripped by the pain of our actions. We've experienced the anger of innocence lost. We've wept in deep sorrow over choices that we've made. We know the hopelessness of Solomon. But in our crying out to God for forgiveness, the shame and the guilt of our actions seem to linger. And it's like, I just can't get free. They just keep resurfacing. And I want to get free from shame. And I want to get free from guilt. But we're just not able to do so. And the result can be madness. We see that in Solomon. So the question is, how do we get rid of regret and shame? And come to a place of being able to move on. In the time I have remaining, let's see if we can answer that question. Because I, I don't want anyone in here to look like Solomon. That's a pretty dark place to be. Flip over to Matthew chapter 22. Jesus has asked the greatest commandment in the Bible, and he responds, Matthew 22 and verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. Verse 38, so that's the first one. The second greatest commandment, or this is the greatest and first commandment, then he says, but there's another one, a second one, verse 39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in those verses, Jesus makes some commands. Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. We know there's two commandments there. But in the second commandment, there's really a third that could be added. Take a look at it. Not only are we told to love God and love others, but we are also told to love ourselves. And this is the most often missed command in the Bible. 
as Christians, we tend to read that verse and say, love thy neighbor and hate thyself. As Christians, we think true humility means to belittle ourselves. Friends, that's not self-love, that is self-loathing. And friends, at the heart of much of this faulty theology is the fact that we have yet to forgive ourselves. We are still actively engaging in a self-imposed penance. Jesus forgives us. Why won't we forgive ourselves? You know, I wonder how many of us here today are feeling like Solomon, still living on Mount Regret, wallowing in self-imposed sorrow well beyond what is healthy and what God expects. Perhaps even holding at bay the affection and the love of others, perhaps a spouse, because we feel we have no right to enjoy life. All is vanity. We've locked into what A.W. Tozer calls perpetual repentance. Jesus taught that we are to forgive one another. I wonder if we have been too narrow in our application of that verse. Jesus said to forgive your enemies. What if you are being your own worst enemy? In just a few moments, we will receive communion. I want to remind you that... Jesus' death on the cross not only freed you from the bonds of the penalty of your sin, but it also frees you from the bonds of guilt and shame. And sometimes it's not just about what he speaks to us, but it's about allowing ourselves to forgive ourselves, to love ourselves. This was his command. Love your neighbor and love yourself. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. I wouldn't want my neighbor to go through a lifetime of penance. Why would we impose such a weight on ourselves? Let's bow our heads together. Most gracious God, in these quiet moments of communion today, as we gather around this table and are reminded of your great love for us and what you were willing to do so that we could be set free, Lord, there may still be some business in each of our hearts and each of our lives that we need to do. We have confessed sin. We have said, Lord Jesus, please forgive us of our sin. We've experienced your forgiveness of our sins, but we are still holding on at Mount Regret. Lord God, we just ask in the quietness of these moments that some folks would be set free. Lord, that we would finally let go and be received as your child. Lord, uh, there's no amount of self-loathing that's going to justify us. You said in Romans chapter 10 and verse 10 that if we believe in our heart that you are God, Lord, that you, we would be forgiven. You didn't say that if we believed and we self-imposed penance that we could justify ourselves or that we'd be forgiven. Lord, the work of forgiveness has been done. May we just receive it today. Speak and work in our hearts, we pray. In these moments, Holy Spirit, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.